Welcome to the Truth Simply Put, the teaching broadcast vehicle of the Basilea Commission. On today's teaching by Alexander Victor, God's Word, rightly divided in the light of Christ, who is the central theme of the entire scriptures, will come with simplicity, precision, clarity, and power to instruct, admonish, edify, and build you up into the full measure of the stature of Christ. Now, let's dive straight in. The conversation we're going to have over the next few minutes is church consciousness. Church consciousness. A.K.A. or in parenthesis, discerning the Lord's body. Church consciousness, in bracket, discerning the Lord's body. There's so much truth that is lost in the body of Christ today because certain texts of scripture were misinterpreted. There are certain truths that are lost in the body of Christ today because certain scriptures were misinterpreted. In other words, every time a text of scripture is misinterpreted, a very vital truth of the gospel is lost. Every time a text of scripture is misinterpreted, a very vital truth of the gospel is lost. So most of what we have as doctrines and dogmas in the church, unfortunately, are a product of misinterpreted scriptures. The fact that everybody has taught the same thing for centuries doesn't make it right. Problem is, the reception or the receiving of a text of scripture is usually subjected to the size and influence of the person submitting that interpretation. So when you sing a particular song and it's doctrinally wrong and we tell you it's doctrinally wrong, you're like, who, who are you? How many views does your YouTube video have? How many followers do you have on Instagram that you want to correct? How many hit tracks have you released that you want to correct doctrine? So by virtue of mob action, we conclude that the louder the person, the more accurate his or her submission. And men, the truth couldn't be farther from that. So whenever a text of scripture is misinterpreted, a key truth is lost. Good example, Luke 6. Jesus is speaking and he starts this conversation from verse 20. He starts this conversation from verse 20 and there are different segments to what he's saying. That's where he starts with what is popularly known as the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the, you know, poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, and he runs all of that. And then he continues to to have his conversation. It's one conversation, right? One. By 37, he gets to judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Press down, shaken together running over, will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Go back to 37. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. It's not talking about you and God. It's talking about you and I. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive your brother, and you will be forgiven by your brother. The focus doesn't instantly change 
to become God just because forgiveness was introduced as a subject matter. It's one conversation. Now pay attention carefully to the nomenclature. Forgive and you shall be forgiven. A repentant person is easier to forgive than a cantankerous person. Every time they say to you, you know you hurt me. They're like, hey, it's not because. If you had not done this, will I have you even got to the point where I have even said something to offend you? But you find it difficult to hold a grudge against someone who is naturally remorseful about doing something wrong. You look at their puppy eyes and you're like, oh, come on. Sins are forgiven. So forgive and you shall be forgiven. Are you following the context? Now see the next line in the next verse. Forgive and you shall be forgiven. Give and it shall be given. Forgive and it shall be forgiven you. Give and it shall be. The context of give and it shall be given cannot change from the context of forgive and it shall be forgiven you. What is it talking about? Interpersonal relationships in the church. Where does it start? Judge not. You will not be judged. Condemn not. You will not be condemned. Forgive. You will be forgiven. Give. You will be given. Press down good measure, shaking together, shall be given to your bosom. For with the same measure you give, with the same measure, it will be given to you. If you forgive easily, you will receive forgiveness easily. If you are always judging, sir, somebody will always be on hand to judge you. Have you noticed that the people that can't stomach criticism are the loudest critics? You condemn everybody's hair. Your skirt is too tight. Your boobs are too high. Your face is too black. Your, your beard is not too straight. And then we come to you and say to you, your earring is hanging up. You get offended. Somehow you have received a deceptive spirit that informs you that it's your place to criticize the body and the saints in the body. And you cannot handle the slightest, slightest criticism. So if you, if you enjoy judging, judge. It's okay. Just set up yourself to also be judged by those that will have time to judge you. If you enjoy condemning, look at you. Your leg, you're scared. No problem. You shall be condemned. And not of God. Of somebody who has time to walk in the same ministry of condemnation as you. Does that make sense? It is in this context that he comes to the next line and he says, give and it shall be given to you. The pretext, the text, the post text does not mention money. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, president, shaking together and running over shall be put into your bosom. Doesn't mention money. One, doesn't mention God. And it doesn't imply God. Now somewhere, somebody in their greed or hunger. Sometimes they look similar. There's a des desperation that can come from greed. There's a desperation that can come from hunger. And you might be hard pressed to find the, the difference. <laughs> they go together beautifully. That's why when a greedy person is no longer hungry, they can't stop. The more they have, the more they want to have. It has to have been that greed or hunger or a beautiful amalgamation of the two 
that made somebody somewhere somehow introduce money into give and it shall be given to you. There's no other explanation. Somebody was hungry, money was the answer. Somebody was greedy, money was the answer. So we now use that and say, it's time to give to the Lord. The Bible says, in Luke 6, 38, give. The Lord will bless you. The Lord will increase you hundredfold. Problem. Next line. Problem. You are giving to God to give you hundredfold, right? And this scripture is about God, right? Who multiplies what you give, right? But see here in that line, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back. That means if you give God 1,000, what you will get back is 1,000. TPT. Give generously and generous gift to be given back to you. Shaken down to make room for more. Abundant gift to pour out upon you with such an overflowing measure that it will run over the top. Your measurement of generosity becomes the measurement of your return. So what you are getting, scientifically put, is directly proportional to what you're giving. Um, how is that God? Uh, let's see the message. Every time a text of scripture is misinterpreted, a vital truth is lost. Give away your life, you find life giving back. But not merely giving back, giving back with bonus and blessing. Giving not getting is the way generosity begats generosity. It's between you and I. It's not God. Because if God needed what you were going to give to bless you, then first of all, he should multiply what you gave. Not give you back exactly what you gave him. Because if he's giving you back exactly what you gave him, then he is worse than the unprofitable servant who buried that one talent and brought it back and handed it over the same way that the master gave it to him in Luke 19. So at what point did this become about giving and money? Oh, pastor, are you saying we should not give? No, I didn't say that. I'm saying give. But Luke 6.38 is not about giving to God or the church. It's about interpersonal transactions. Every time a text is misinterpreted, vital truth is lost. This is why Paul writes to Timothy and to us by extension. He says, study, study to show yourself approved. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing. Word of truth. Where a text of scripture is misinterpreted, a vital truth is lost. Vital. And there are many such examples in the scripture. Our major text is a text that is subject to serious misrepresentation that is thousands of years old. I mean, you can't argue with scripture. It's clear. Given, it shall be given unto you. It's not, it's, you can't put money there. You can't put God there. So it's, it's there. And people got it wrong. Willfully or accidentally. So also is this, this text we'll be looking at. So before we hit that text, let's do a quick refresher on what the church of Jesus is. And standard working definition from what abiding house. The church is the community or assemblage of all believers. From two words, ek and kaleo, ek meaning 
out of and kaleo to call. So one people who have been called out. So generally an ecclesia would be an assembly of called out people. The uh, national assembly consists of people that have been called out. That's why the people that called them out are called their constituents. Constituting a constituency. So the senator did not just get up and go to the senate. Ideally, the guy should get up, go to an assembly where our constituents or their representatives are gathered, and say, I intend to run for this office and represent you and your interest if you send me there. Politics and legislature is such that they went there to serve us. That's the concept. The taxpayer from a particular constituency is sponsoring their representative to speak their interests such that as a senator sits in the house, all his constituents effectively have sat. But because that chamber cannot contain all of us at the one time, we call out one from among us and send him to represent our interests. What salvation does is that Jesus calls out from, that's why he says, come out from among them and be separate. He calls us out of darkness into light. And what does light do in darkness? Hear me carefully. I know you will say shine. Yes, cliche. But the business of light in darkness is to speak for the darkness until darkness comes to light. That's where the church missed it. We are called out of darkness. Where did we come from? Into what case have we entered light to fight? I'm a regular guy. Asked to be sent to Senate to represent Cross River South. I get into Senate. My one assignment is speaking for Cross River South. Now when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that he has reconciled us and given us what? That is. So now he's making his appeal through us in darkness. Saying be reconciled to God because he has reconciled you to himself. Who are you speaking for? Darkness. That light may come to them. In the same way you get up and say, ah, in my constituency, we don't have transformer. Give us transformer. Let there be power in my constituency. It's the same way as an ambassador of Jesus. You go into the world. And you say, there's no light here. Let there be. And you supply what is missing to your constituents. Because we are once like them. Go out there and say, I've received this light. I've, I've been called out of darkness. I've received light. Now I've brought light back to my constituents. Yes, Take what I've received. That's the word ecclesia. Ek out of kaleo. Called out. That's what makes us an assembly. That we have all been called out to represent a common interest. Are you here? Assembly of what? Believers. Oh, a believer is one who has believed. So there cannot be a church without believers. Another age-long error in the church. Invite all your unbelievers to service on Sunday. Wrong, wrong, 
wrong, scripturally unfounded. There's no place in the scripture where people were asked to invite unbelievers to church to be saved. Hear me and hear me carefully. Church gatherings is not the vehicle for saving the lost. The ecclesia, as we have gathered now, is not how the lost are saved. Oh, can somebody repent in a meeting like this? Can somebody meet Jesus? Oh, yes, absolutely. They hear the gospel, they believe, faith floods their hearts, light floods their eyes, they come into the knowledge of the truth. Yes, is that the aim or purpose of a church meeting? No, the church meeting is the gathering of believers. The gathering of believers. And God added to them, Acts chapter 2, daily such as were being saved. Not such as needed to be saved. It is the gathering of believers. Not the gathering of potential believers. Those who are believed. Believe what? The gospel. So I wrote here, the church of Jesus Christ is made up of those who have believed the gospel and have become sons of God. You get it? It's not for unbelievers or potential believers. So we have turned our pulpits, in quote, to evangelistic tools. And we are safe from the world. We don't smell like the world. We are, we're not stressed. We just, you bring them to church. You do the hard work, like multi-level marketing. You go out and slave and bring them. When, when you bring them and they meet us, they'll see what a wonderful product we have. They will like your pastor. They will like your music. They will like your room. They will like your welcome team and your hospitality ushers outside. Looking hot and clapping them in. And oh, I like the church. They're so hospitable. Go to the hospital. An unbeliever is not supposed to even look forward to going to church. He should dread it. Of course, Paul understands that here and there, he mentions it in 1 Corinthians 14, here and there an unbeliever will waltz into your meetings. And then he hopes that when you're speaking in your understanding, that person can receive a level of edification. Should the person come into church. Not that church is designed to be inviting unbelievers to. Because when we gather as a church, and an unbeliever or two or three are with us, we're not a church. A senate cannot sit if a non-senator is in the room. When it's a closed session, they usher everybody else out. We're not ready to handle things as a church. We're not ready to handle things. When we're discussing major issues, the gallery is closed. There is a corporateness of mind, of heart, of voice that is missing once our gathering is compromised. Even by the person you want to save. Which is very foolish. Because you can't save anybody. Yeah. You are saved to save others. Jesus saved you, but he doesn't have energy to save the rest. He now has to send you to help him. The church is compromised once you mix the wheat and the tars. The Lord added to the church those who were being saved. Even for you, Christian believer, being in church does not mean you are saved. Not everybody in church is saved because church has compromised her makeup from ages past. Do you understand that? But being saved, and this is where we start getting into the attempts to try and start the introduction of church consciousness. Being saved means that you are added to the church. 
Being in the church doesn't mean you're saved. But being saved means you are added to the church automatically and instantly. Such that you cannot be saved and not in the church. You cannot be saved or you cannot be, you understand what I mean? You cannot be someone who is saved and exist apart from the church. As you are saved and you receive redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, justification, righteousness, all of that, you are on a conveyor belt that instantly delivers you into the church. The universal Catholic church of Jesus Christ. Once you are saved, you are saved into the church. You cannot be saved into Christ. And that saving into Christ did not bring you into church. It's not possible. The moment you are saved, as you are receiving Christ, you don't apply to join the church of Jesus. And you don't choose to not join because you don't feel like joining. This is where I don't have time to spend arguing with people that talk about, oh, you know, you can be alone and you can walk with the Holy Spirit and walk, 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 walk. Because one person, sir, one person cannot be an assembly. One person cannot be. And who are you assembling with? You see why Paul calls some things high sounding nonsense. person cannot assemble and the church is an assembly of believers together so once you are saved you are saved into the church of Jesus there's nothing you can do about it as you are saved you are saved into the church and you are led to an expression of the church you are led Saul after his encounter did he choose Ananias no he didn't choose Ananias God arranged it what did he say in Jeremiah 3.15? I will, I, I God, I, I God, I God, Jeremiah 3.15, I God, I will give you pastors after my own heart. Shepherds is the worst presbyteros, pastors. I will give you pastors. I will give you pastors or shepherds after my own heart. That's it. I will give you pastors, King James, after my own heart which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. So in actual fact, a believer doesn't choose a pastor. God determines your pastor. If God chose a pastor for you, that is the end of your honor. Your honor finishes on the person God chose for you. You die to every other voice. You can tell Paul, Paul, do you know, do you know Ananias? Ananias has never laid hands on anybody before. You, you have gone around. People know your name, Saul of Tarsus. Your name strikes fear in the hearts of people. And you now come for Ananias to be the one to lay hands on you and commission you to ministry. You're not looking for James, the brother of Jesus. Peter, who saw the revelation of Jesus Christ and Saul. There are men of timber and caliber in this kingdom. Ananias, who is he? We never heard of him before. Because we never heard of him before. Never heard of him before. Now everything that God, I saw Jesus, I saw light that blinded me. He said, go to Ananias, stay with him, let him minister to you, lay hands on you. So it's essentially, that's who kick-started Saul's ministry. 
If God planted you in a place, that's all that is on your lips, all that is on your heart, all that is your life. Church consciousness. Discerning the Lord's body. Imagine all that Timothy would have heard about Paul. And they hear people come up and say, oh, call no man father. You know, Paul says, though you have many, 10,000 instructors in Christ. Hey, I'm coming. And I remember I taught you in, in Imitate. Instructor, did I scan? Someone who teaches you and brings you into something. That's not the word used for though you have many instructors in Christ Jesus in that verse. The word used there is a word translated babysitter. The word used for tutor in Galatians that said the law was a tutor to bring you to Christ. The Lord did not teach you anything. The law is like that person in the classroom when you serve detention. Just They say you should sit here and not move until they come back for you. Like a nanny. So we're just guarding you. I can't tell you to do something not to do it. I can't tell you to go, not go. My instructions is just keep it here until they come back for you. And so you have 10,000 of those, of, of course, metaphorically speaking. You have so many people that are telling you right, wrong, arrange here, sit here, in crisis, but none of them is your father. That's what he meant. If a text of scripture is misinterpreted, a vital truth yes. is lost. Yes. You are saved into the church of Jesus. Tell your neighbor to your left or right. Tell the other one. Tell the person behind you if there's one. No believer is saved in a vacuum. No believer is saved in a vacuum. I've said this over and over. No believer is saved to walk the faith walk alone. That is a concept that is alien to scripture. Peter says no word of prophecy referring to the word of God is of private interpretation, right? He says holy men moved by the spirit wrote as they were inspired. Have you seen places in the gospels or in Acts where Jesus was having conversations with just one person? No, there, there are. Let's, let's start with Nicodemus. Let's go a chapter further to the Samaritan woman. Let's get to the Roman centurion. Let's get to Nathaniel. Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. There are most, Jesus is walking. He has not chosen any disciples. He sees Peter and Andrew, his brother. He says, follow me. How do we have these on record? How do we have on record something about Jesus talking to only one person? Because Luke writing in chapter 1 and verse 2, you see where Luke got his information from. Luke 1, 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, Luke, us, me, Luke, who is writing Luke and Acts. I received what I'm writing from eyewitnesses. And ministers of the word delivered them to us. Keep going. It seemed good to me also, in addition to them, also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account. So Luke was just trying to systemize what he had received from eyewitness accounts for extra fleshing out of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. None of them write as much of Mary as Luke. Luke writes most of Mary. And according to Bible history, he had a personal relationship with Mary. So he had the privilege of Mary, the mother of Jesus, sitting him down and saying, see what happened. 
So, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John 3. Somebody was there. And that somebody is not the Holy Spirit. In John 2, Jesus and Mary are having the conversation. Whatever he says to you, do it. Somebody was there. And this is how these accounts are compiled together. And that is why sometimes there's errors of translation. Because people remember certain things differently. I said that to say, if he came on earth being all about personal, then his personal encounters with people will not have been known. If Jesus is personal savior, everything is me and God, you and God, you and God, you and God, then the encounters Jesus had with Nicodemus, there will be no eyewitness. Nobody to write about it. If it was just him and Mary in John 2, only them, no witnesses. Nobody to write about it. Him and the one at the well, just him, eyewitnesses, nobody to write about it. Because the John the Beloved that wrote the Gospel of John followed them to go and buy food. He didn't say any disciples stayed back. So in the magnanimity and the sovereignty of God, it is highly likely that when they came back, they called one guy to decide. Don't forget John says in chapter 21. I didn't write everything. Oh. If I wrote everything. And he sees a lady sitting down there. He says, the way Jesus is looking, what happened to our master when we were gone? And she or he would have recounted that to the disciples. And then at the time where some of them is writing, the Holy Spirit, here's what inspiration is. It is the Holy Spirit saying, you see that other one that that one told? It's like you gather interviews. You interview 300 people for, for a documentary. And then when it's time to start editing them, you start choosing the one to use and how to use it. So inspiration is the Holy Spirit impressing on their hearts which of the accounts to document. Which of the accounts to put down? Which of the accounts is going to be relevant for the reader across all ages? Out of all you have accumulated from the accounts of Jesus, both when you were there and when you were not there. That's inspiration. It's not inspiration in a vacuum. Like, you know, you're not there. The Holy Spirit just saying, you know, just write this. You know, just write that John was talking to Mary. Just write that Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman. Just write, no, 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 that's not, that's, that's not inspiration. Inspiration was guidance into what to document. Guidance into what to document from what you had seen from eyewitnesses. And this would not have been possible if Jesus was a personal savior. Because every dealing of Jesus would have been personal. Shh, don't let anybody know. Just, just me and you. We don't need to involve everybody. Just me and you. Just do this. So who introduced that concept? Heaven is a personal race. That's one of the most demonic lies in the body of Christ. If it's a personal race, then somebody should get there before somebody. Yes. Depending on how quick you are, how fast you are, if it's a personal race, somebody should get to the finish line before another person. If it's a personal race, how come nobody's there yet? The dead in Christ, all the dead in Christ, all, all the dead in Christ will rise together. And we who are alive shall be caught up with them together. What's personal about that? Heaven is a personal race. He's our Lord and personal savior. He's our community savior. We are all sharing the one savior. Not personal to you. No human being can lay exclusive claim to Jesus as savior. He came as savior of the world. He announced it. Savior of the world. He came to take away the sins of the world. So no believer is saved to exist alone. Jesus saved me. That is good enough for me. No, sir. At the instant you were saved is the instant you were introduced into the family of God. 1 Corinthians 12. You're not saved to walk your faith walk alone. 
I've told you over and over. Do you understand now why I said to you, if the devil wants to have you, he'll first isolate you. No, I was going through something. So I decided to withdraw myself and just be alone. You are foolish. You have successfully learned how to separate your faith from the church. Don't do it. Don't let the devil cheat you out of it. You have to be repenting of concept after concept of how you have over the years interpreted your faith in many instances in isolation from the church. It is the ground and pillar of truth. So next time you hear me say, my name is Pav, I'm a church boy. You understand what I mean? It doesn't mean I'm religious. But church, the church of the, I'm a church boy. I will spend my time in church. I will spend my money in church. I will spend my resources in church. I will spend my energy in church. I'm a church boy. I'm a church boy. I love the church. I love the church. I honor the church. I respect the church. I esteem the church. I edify the church. Because my salvation cannot exist. Hear me carefully. Your salvation cannot exist apart from the church. Oh, the church doesn't save you. The Lord saves you into his church. I am a church boy. I make no apology. You can't come and cast aspersions and try to dampen the value I place on the church of Jesus Christ. And in a short while, you will start to see why. And there is things I speak by the Spirit of God that will die a natural death in the church of Jesus Christ once light comes into your eyes. So much to repent of. Church consciousness, <laughs> discerning the Lord's body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 14. Thank you, Father. For as the body is one, and has many members. Can you see that? Yes, sir. The body is one and has many members. But all the members of that body being many are one body. For as the body is one and has many members. But all the members of that body being many are one body. So also is Christ. Next verse. It will be clear to you now. For by one spirit. You see why I said to you that you don't have a spirit? My spirit said. For by one spirit. We were all baptized. Into one body. Hear carefully. You were baptized. Into one body. Very soon, I will show you in Galatians, very shortly, I'll show you in Galatians, where the believer is baptized into Christ Jesus. If you are baptized into one body, and you're baptized into Christ, then you understand why I tell you, you cannot say you are saved and not part of the church. Because if you're baptized into Christ, you are baptized into the body. If you're baptized into the body, you have to have come from Christ. I didn't say if you are made a member of a church. It's baptism. And today, I will show you what baptism is. Put that verse back on the screen, verse 13. Whether Jews or Greeks, 
whether slaves or free, and all Malago Sevradaba have all been made to drink into one spirit. 14 and the last verse. 14. For in fact, hear this carefully. The body is not one member, but many. Tell your neighbor, the body is not one member, but many. It's not one member, but many. We were all baptized into one body. I wrote here, being saved automatically and immediately introduces you into a new family made up of others like you. Made up of others like you. Automatically. Automatically. Introduces you to a family made up of others like you. That's why you must be very careful when you always sense an urge to make you appear different from the rest of us. I said you must be ready to repent of many concepts you have formed in your head. Anything that drives you to constantly want to be apart from us, show that you are, you're kind of more sophisticated than us. You know, you're kind of more pretty than us. You, you're kind of too, too cool for the rest of us. And, and you, you don't want to have your hands dirty like the rest of us. You, you don't want to talk and, and, and be known and, and be heard like the rest of us. There's something about you that wants to protect your individuality, your, your exclusivity, your peculiarity, your uniqueness. You have begun to listen to the doctrine of demons because that is not the scriptures and it manifests in subtle things like not being able to sit in certain places or sit with certain people or, or show up at certain times and you, you're constantly wanting to segregate and, and isolate and, and come apart and always show that you are a little different from everybody else because if you blend like us, we will not hear your accent and we will not hear your stuff and not know that you are sort of different from everybody else, sir. You are not added by the Lord. It's not the workings of the Holy Spirit. To isolate people in one body. You get up and the hand feels like, I don't, I don't feel like moving. I want to just be here, away from everybody else. I don't, I don't feel like seeing the face today. The parts are many, but the body is one. It's one. If you're one of such people that over the years have gotten used to your own individual cocoon, you don't understand church. You don't understand the Lord's body. You don't understand that we have been baptized into something. It's not that you got saved and just felt like, oh, this Pav, his gospel is nice. Let me go to that church. No, no, no. He gave you pastors. And even your pastor, you have walked in dishonor because you did not understand that he was tailor-made for you. You don't understand the Lord's body. You don't understand church. It's the body that we are baptized into. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. You see this. I said we're baptized into one spirit, right? Yes, sir. Into one body. See Romans. I start from verse 1 for just for context. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in saying that grace may abound? Verse 2. Certainly not. Or some translations say by no means. And it says how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus. You were baptized 
into Christ Jesus and consequently it means you were baptized into his death. Jesus did not give his body as a sacrifice for you to break it. Jesus did not sacrifice his body for you to break it. He did not call any believer to break his body. So we are breaking bread. He did not give his body for you to be the one that breaks it. He broke it. When a text of scripture is misinterpreted, a vital truth is lost. Do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? If anything is going to be mangled, let it be my physical body. So that after it's mangled, whatever my physical body represents stays as one, though it may be many. Galatians 3.27. Look at it again, Paul telling a different church. He says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ. If you have been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Baptized into Christ, baptized into one body, baptized into one spirit, baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death. Are you here? This is where it starts to get ouchy. Because this baptism do not connote or imply water. Unfortunately, baptism is another misinterpreted and misrepresented word for many ages. By definition, baptism is an act that requires a medium. There's a haze machine here. For most of you, what you see is the haze or the smoke, right? That pumps the haze. The haze fluid is this thing here. Such that if I disconnected this fluid container from the machine, I starve it of the haze required to keep pumping once what is in here has run out. Does that make sense? So what is being converted to haze is actually this fluid. What you're seeing is this liquid being heated up and converted and poured out. Now, when the chamber inside draws the haze in, it converts that and pumps that out. And the, the, the reason that we have haze is so that it can accentuate lights. You will not see this rays of light in the absence of haze. Does that make sense? No. You see haze. The haze doesn't pump itself. The machine is nothing outside the haze. The machine becomes the medium by which haze is put out. It will not pump itself. It needs a machine to act as a medium or as a distribution channel or as a processing channel to get the haze out in a form that can be appreciated. Does that make sense? So in the absence of haze, you cannot appreciate the dispersion of a light fixture. That's all haze does. Does that make sense? So haze is required, but it is not able to be used until there's a medium that sends it out. Does that make sense? Baptism is an act like this haze that requires a medium. Baptism is an act that needs something to administer it. 
without which you cannot appreciate what needs to be administered. Does that make sense? So, one must use something to baptize. It is erroneous to think baptism and think water. Are you here? Baptism is an act that requires a medium. One must use something to baptize. And one must be baptizing for a particular purpose. Baptism is an act that requires a medium. Baptism needs something to baptize with. And baptism is done for a particular purpose. This dude is called John the Baptist because he's the first person that introduces the concept of baptism in the scriptures. A few people have gone what is called in English parlance skinny dipping. Skinny dipping is an English phenomenon by which you go to the beach or the river or a stream or the ocean, not a pool, and you are, as your mama gave birth to you, absolutely naked, and you jump in the water and hope for the best. Hope for the best in the sense that you're hoping that when it's time for you to come out, people that don't need to see you hopefully will not see you. That's skinny dipping. So it's like an adrenaline, risk-taking sort of almost sport. That people, because you know generally you wear a bikini or sports shorts or whatever. But skinny dipping is absolutely nude. Just jump in the water in a public place and hope for the best. Because when you're in the water, you're good, right? Yeah. So you're hoping that by the time you're ready to come out, hopefully there's nobody around to see you or somehow you'll manage. So it's called skinny dipping. In the Old Testament, we had a couple of accounts of skinny dipping. Oh yes, Naaman went skinny dipping. The concept of baptism as it got to be known is introduced by someone who actually had to be named according to the concept. John the Baptist. If you ignore John's submissions of baptism, you are very, very malicious. I mean, this guy is called John the Baptist. John the postulator of baptisms. So the first person to teach baptisms accurately is the only person we have refused to learn what he has to say about baptism. But you can't interpret baptism and ignore the Baptist. You can't ignore the Baptist and think you have a firm grasp on baptisms. How is that possible? So to understand baptisms fundamentally, we must go back to the Baptist. And hear what he starts to say about baptisms. Baptism, by the way, baptize is from the word baptizo. Very close in the, in the Greek. And it means to submerge or immerse such that you are wholly taken or covered or dipped in something. Something. It doesn't say water. That's why I said it requires a medium. Are you with me? To emerge, submerge, immerse something, or it also means, baptism also means to be completely overwhelmed by. And the word by is this, it's a preposition in the Greek, even in English, but in the Greek, the word by is a preposition that also means in, on, upon, with, through, Using, with the application of, 
they are all the same preposition in the Greek, which is the word and, en. So en can mean with, can mean upon, can mean through, can mean in, can mean upon, can mean using, can mean applying. Does that make sense? So when you say baptize with, you are saying immerse or dip or submerge or overwhelm in or using or with or upon. Are you here? Now let's see what the Baptist has to say about baptizo and Matthew chapter 3. Why am I saying all this? We were baptized into Christ Jesus. Baptized into his body. Baptized into his death. Baptized into one spirit. If you don't understand baptism, none of this will make sense to you. Matthew 3. Hear the Baptist. Malago Shefrada in verse 11. I indeed, it is true. That I baptize you with water. First of all, if baptism in itself was water, the writer will not say, I baptize you with water. That's tautology. It's obvious. Why will I be saying, I baptize you with water, with water? But baptizo means to immerse, submerge, you know, immerse, overwhelm someone with something. I've explained that with and is with, through, in, upon, by using the same way that this machine is used to pump haze. Does that make sense? That means whatever, I, if I fool this thing with alcohol, this machine will do everything it takes, everything it can to convert this alcohol to haze. Now the properties might differ. You're right, the uh, evaporation rate of alcohol is much higher, you know, stuff like that. Um, certain small planes actually can fly with whiskey. Certain small Cessna planes, if you're out of, of aviation fuel in, this, in the sky, you can toy a bottle of whiskey into your little Cessna plane and it will start it enough to go because it burns as light or as closely as possible to aviation fuel. You might change your, your injector after a while, you know, because you fry your filter or whatever, but it will shall work. So if we mix something and put here, it might not have the same properties of haze and so it might not act the same, but this machine will do everything required because its, it's, it's, its assignment is to convert that liquid to haze. And the machine doesn't exactly know what the haze liquid is. Yes. It just does what it's here to do. In the same way, this guy says, I baptize, I use water to cover you, to overwhelm you. What is the medium of the Baptist's baptism? Water. As one of a number of mediums. Because if there's a possibility that water is a medium, then that possibility is open that other such mediums exist. Okay. Go back to verse 11. I baptize you the water. Unto repentance. I told you baptism is using something and for a particular purpose. Now, he says, I baptize you with water unto or for repentance. And repentance is not the forgiveness of sins. It's not, and this, again, this is where the church has got it totally messed up. 
Metanoia is not the forgiveness of sins. It is the changing of one's mind from a previously held conviction about something or someone to another one. Or, in literal terms, it is the making of a 180 degree turn or going in the opposite direction of where you have always been going. The Jews needed to repent because they were not in a state to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They were expecting the Messiah, just not in the presentation of Jesus. The Messiah will come and he will set us free from our Roman oppressors and he will set up a physical kingdom right here, right now. And give us back the throne of our father David. That was the expectation. They couldn't have seen this boy who was born in a manger. With that, if you had that understanding of Jesus, you had to repent of it to see him. Because if you hold that perspective of Jesus, you will not see him. Do you understand that now? So he says, I baptize you with water unto repentance. Please see this next line. But he who is coming, he who is coming, go on, after me is mightier than I. This is the Baptist speaking. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He, somebody say he. he. Say he. he. Will baptize you. I am using water to baptize. This one is coming. He's bigger than me. What he will load. What he will load to baptize you. Me, I'm loading water to baptize you. Are you following me now? I'm loading water. Water is the, is the medium by which I'm baptizing you. And I'm also baptizing you only for repentance. When he comes, what he will load in his baptism machine is the Holy Spirit, which is fire. Hagios numatos kai. That is to say, fire. I am using water to baptize you for repentance. He will use Holy Ghost and fire. We are endued with the Holy Ghost. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. He will not use water. So I know the answer is already obvious. But if we are baptized into Christ, what did he use? Can't be water because water baptized into repentance. So it can't be by water that we are baptized into Christ because we are baptized into one spirit. Mark 1, Mark 1, Mark 1 verse 8. This is still the Baptist speaking. Somebody said the Baptist. John the Baptist. Look at him. He says, I indeed baptized you with water. But, as a departure from what I'm doing, he will baptize you with, in, using, through, by the medium of applying the Holy Spirit. Luke 3.16. Who is speaking? The Baptist. You can't be talking about baptism and ignore what the Baptist has to say about it. John answered, saying to all. Saying to how many? Saying to how many? I indeed baptize you with water. Look at this. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John chapter 1 verse 26. The Baptist is still the one speaking. 
are baptized with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. Go to verse 31. 31 all the way to 34. I did not know him. The Baptist is saying. But that he should be revealed to Israel. 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 Revealed to Israel. Not saving the sins of Israel because he saved the sins of the world. But he's revealing, he's showing to Israel that Israel might recognize him so that he can then do what he came to do. By that he might be revealed. It is because of his revealing to Israel that I came baptizing with water. Tipity. My baptism was for the preparation of his appearing to Israel, even though I have yet to experience him. Let's see how the message puts this. And then we'll go back to New King James. The message. I knew nothing about who he was, only this. That my task has been to get Israel ready. Please, this is the Baptist speaking. My task is simple. Get Israel, 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 ready to see him. Because it will take an Israelite to see what people are looking for. Me, I will see him. I've not seen him, but he had a promise. The promise was, who you see the Holy Spirit come upon. So a deposit of the Holy Spirit was given to the Baptist. So as he's baptizing, and baptizing, and baptizing. Once he see the Spirit upon... <laughs> Go back to 31 in the New King James and let's go to verse 32. Are you getting this? And John, the Baptist, bore witness saying, I saw. I didn't know him more. But then I saw. The spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remained. Remained. Upon him. I did not know him. But he, God, who sent me to baptize with, John never said, I baptized. He always qualified what he baptized with. And you think, ah, you have said it once now, or twice. He keeps saying it. I baptize with water. I baptize with water. I baptize with water. I baptize with water. Because that adjectivization, that qualification was necessary. If you miss it, you miss the entire truth. You missed the entire truth. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him. Because everybody else, sir, Holy Spirit came and left. Oh. This is what one smart pants, there's a phrase in English called smarty pants. One smarty pants by the name of David. Greedy boy. Say, take not your Holy Spirit. My friend! Do you understand that prayer? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's why, because he tasted the Holy Spirit. He now wanted to, he now wanted to kidnap the Holy Spirit and keep him here. But that was a prophetic sign of Jesus. Upon him he comes and remains. That's what do distinguish him from David, from Gideon, from Joshua, from Ahalia, from Bahaziel, from all the other guys that had the Holy Spirit. This one, he will come and remain. Come and remain. And remaining on him, go on next line, 
This is who? The, the one that the Holy Spirit comes and remains is the one that can give you the Holy Spirit. It's the only one that can give you the Holy Spirit. So my assignment is to keep dipping in water. Dipping in water. Dipping in water. Until Wait. This is why when Jesus showed up, the Baptist now said to him, in Asim John 1, he said, ah, you are the one now. You are the one. Baptizing with Holy Spirit and, and fire. No, sir. It is me that should come to you to baptize me. And you are coming to me? John's baptism was preparatory. It was what? For salvation it was not salvation in itself and if it was church has totally screwed it over by now wanting to dunk you in water after you have been saved it should be if it is for salvation if it is a requirement for salvation then at the point we preach the gospel to you and you are looking like you want to believe we baptize you first so that your sin can be forgiven if it is required for salvation. So even in our turning the cat before the horse, we have proved that we have zero understanding. Because why wait for somebody to confess their sins? Why wait for them to be saved and say, I am now born again? And so, okay, next thing after born again, water. It was preparatory. For salvation. There was not salvation in itself. Let me read you something I found in my net Bible. The NET study Bible. A baptism of repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. Was a call for the preparation. Of the arrival. Of the Lord's salvation. Preparation for the arrival. Of the Lord's salvation. To participate in this baptism was a recognition of the need for God's forgiveness with a sense that one needed to live differently as a response to it. So when somebody came out of the Jordan being baptized by John, they entered a consciousness of looking forward to seeing Jesus. Not seeing Jesus and then coming back to John. You come out of John programmed to identify Jesus. So the moment he starts saying, Behold the Lamb of John's disciples left John. Instantly. They left John. Because this is who our baptism prepared us to meet. They left John and were not sorry. Not sorry. It was preparatory. This is where I saw that the church missed it. You see where the church missed it? The, the Jews missed it. Because you know, you know, Jesus said to them, he said, an adulterous generation always seeks a sign. John came wearing camel's hair, camel's skin, eating locusts and wild honey, living in the catacombs and in the wilderness. Go repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they began to come to him first as an evangelist. And then others in ignorance began to come to him as though the forgiveness of their sins lay with him. 
he, as you have seen all through scripture, made the purpose and medium of his baptism too categorically clear to miss. He kept saying, see, oh, I came to baptize with water for repentance to prepare Israel to receive this guy. When he comes, he's greater than I am. He will baptize not with water, with the Holy Ghost on fire. It's very clear. He never said, my baptism can forgive your sins. He never said so. But as always with mob action, what one person does, everybody does. By Mark chapter 1, you see something very, very preposterous. And sad, which is what denominationalism has imbibed over the past few hundred years and began to do. Mark chapter 1 and verse 4. You see what happens there. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Repentance, preparation, change your mind so that he that is coming to forgive your sins can forgive you. Now see verse 5. Once they had preparation for repentance of sins, then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River to the wrong person. I dare submit to you that this is why John did not understand his ministry was over. Because the moment John saw what God said he would see, he should have come out of the water, folded his wrapper, and followed Jesus. End of ministry. How can you be saying to somebody, but I'm supposed to be the one coming to you for baptism. And Jesus says, suffer it to be so. The moment Jesus, you're like, by that time you have this Holy Spirit, you have that small two liters of Holy Spirit. They're already praying in tongues. They're like, shakaba, lavranda malal. Father, give me grace to finish this baptism quickly. As soon as Jesus comes out. And then to make matters worse, to make matters worse, as he's coming out, you are hearing the voice of God speaking. The fact that somebody wrote it means people heard it. Behold, the, my son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. People heard it. That's why somebody could write it. As you are baptizing, holy, just in case you thought maybe you are not sure whether this is the one. You heard the voice of the father. You saw the dove. You will just pack your ministry thing. And you follow him immediately. But no. John tried to form relevance in ministry. And as I was, as I was studying, I got to begin to see why. Because people have started confessing their sins to him. So at one point or the other, in his consciousness, he began to shift. So by the time you're now asking, are you the Messiah? When you said, I do not know him. But the one that sent me said, the one on whom you see the Holy Spirit descend and remain. And you saw it. And it was you that was the first person to say, behold the Lamb of God. And then you tell a believer now who has met Jesus to return to John. Otherwise, his salvation is not complete. Verse 5, let's finish this. Mark 1, 5. We're baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Keep going, verse 6. Now John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. This is, this is showing you the picture of John that made him such a commanding force. But people start to go, oh, I said so much today. You know what, oh. So he ate wild, locust and wild honey. Keep going. So we're going up to verse 8. And he preached saying, there comes one after me. He preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I. Whose sandal straps are not worthy to stoop down and loose. 
I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark 3, 6. Matthew, Matthew 3, 6. Matthew repeats the same account. Matthew chapter 3, verse 6. And were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. That was the problem of John. That was the problem of the Israelites. And that's the problem of today's church. You have substituted the cross for the water. What only the cross can do. You have taken it back to John's baptism that is powerless. Nobody had the forgiveness of sins until Jesus died. Not even those he promised. I taught you that he gave them in a promissory sense. The guy whose four friends dropped him from the roof. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. It was a promissory sense because he knew. My word cannot fall to the ground. If I've told you your sins are forgiven, take it to the bank. Nobody had forgiveness of sins until Jesus died. Nobody. So John could not be forgiven sins by baptism before pointing out Jesus. There's no need for Jesus to have come. Confess ye your sins to the Baptist and be saved. Don't give in a bit of water. Keep you in for as long as your sins are. No need for Jesus. Confess ye your sins to the Baptist. Go for a swim. You're saved. Easy. And then this is even a John the Baptist we can even see. Tangible stuff. Nobody had forgiveness of sins until Jesus came. So when you see people confessing sins to John, you know both them and John got it wrong. And that is why scriptures included it. Not for it to become your practice, but so it can inform your doctrine. Not everything in scripture is for practice. Some things are included so you, it can inform your doctrine. You can see why they got it wrong. Romans 15 and 4. For whatever things were written before, were written for our learning. So the fact that you saw people confessing their sins to John doesn't mean you get up and start confessing your sins to John at the place of water baptism. Because if it was impossible for the blood of bulls and rams to take away sin, it's not the water that a person is baptizing in a dirty Jordan river. That can take away sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Blood. Someone say blood. Blood. Not blood. Not the water of somebody that doesn't qualify to be a lamb. It's one, one is not blood. Two is water. Three, from somebody who is not qualified to be a lamb and needs saving himself. Yes, sir. nowhere near qualified to even handle sins. Handle, 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 handle. How much more take away or forgive? And because he forgave sins, I mean, he did his best to, to tell them now. Uh, one is coming, he's mightier. But we, we, we can't even see him, but you, you are here now. Just take our sins. Let's confess. You are here, we can see you. And that's what's happened today. You see, we tell you the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, your, your mind is not settled. Until somebody says to you, Father, Father, please forgive them. Huh? Father, Father, please remove their name from the book of death. Father and Father, please. When you're saying please, 
you are appealing to someone's good nature on account of your good character. Please. They say, please, for me. Just since I'm the one asking for them, please look at me. You have become the mediator between God and man. Please, please, please forgive them. Please wash them. That's the same thing we're doing now. And then we that tell you that by whose stripes you were healed. We that tell you that in whom you have redemption. Through his blood. The forgiveness of We are now the enemy. You are deranged. You see why I don't have time for nonsense? I'm too grounded in what the word of God says. To mind what you think about me. Everyone has a problem. I'm too grounded. The word of God is too clear. It's too explicit. It's too clear, sir. And I, I keep saying, if I'm the only one that's teaching it, I'll teach it. Is it not clear? What, scripture after scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, multiple times, very clear. I refuse to return from Jesus to John. Hallelujah. Stubbornly refuse. I've not been baptized in water. I am not sure if I'm saved. I break that hold of the enemy. Oh, you have, you have had a swim a few times. Praise God for your life. Then you hear people start twisting it and saying, well, it's a outward show. Of, no, no, it is, it is Christ in me. Walked out as he's walking in me. That is the show of my faith. I receive substance and be looking to show it in symbols. I receive the substance, then I'm looking to show it in a symbol. Ah, yeah, yeah. See, listen to me. That's where the church missed it totally. And when we get to that scripture that I want to show you about what has been misunderstood, then it will make sense to you what they were eating and what they were eating it for. Can you receive the substance then you are going to a symbol it is usually the symbol or the shadow that leads substance not the other way around John pointed to Jesus Jesus never led any disciple back to John 
<laughs> when Jesus was baptized in water, he said, suffer it to be so that just righteousness might be fulfilled. Or else he should have had some sins to confess to John. Yeah, Matthew 3. He said, he said ah, is it me that you're supposed to be the one baptizing me. Jesus says, yeah, just, just let all righteousness be fulfilled. Let them not say that when you were baptizing Israelites, and Israelites now came and refused to be baptized. Don't come and spoil my market. Just baptized. It's the baptism of Jesus by the Holy Spirit that brings us into Christ. Baptism with the Holy Spirit that brings us into Christ Jesus. No other way. Can't be two ways. I said there's no other way. What I've just said is what now makes Ephesians 4, 5 sweet my belly. Put it up. Go from verse 4. Go from verse 4. But I need verse 5. Go from verse 4. Ephesians 4, 4. Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body. One. One body. And one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. See verse 5. Lord, One Lord. One faith. <laughs> Excuse me, how many baptisms? <laughs> Which one? With the Holy Spirit into Christ Jesus, into Christ Jesus, into Christ Jesus, into Christ Jesus, into Christ Jesus. One, one baptism with the Holy Spirit into Christ Jesus. One. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. John's baptism cannot be added. For the believer, one. See, if you want to practice biblical baptism for repentance, as we just reach the crusade ground, as we reach there and set up, just do baptism. Yes, sir. Okay. To prepare you to even hear what you want to say. We just set up the water. You say, everybody come out and be baptized to prepare yourself to receive what I'm about to tell you. If you must apply John's baptism, that is when and how to yes. apply it. Yes. To an unbeliever, to prepare them to hear the gospel and receive. Yes. So maybe when they hear the gospel, maybe by virtue of your water, yes. depending on how clean and pure, or pure, your water is. But for the believer in Christ Jesus, what's the medium? The Holy Spirit, what's the destination? Now you see the interesting thing. You know we have been saying baptize, I baptize you. Yeah. I baptize you. I baptize you. And that's the word baptizo. Right? But in Ephesians 4, 5, it says one baptism. The word baptism takes on a different variant from baptizo and becomes baptisma. One, I baptize you. Baptizo. The, the verb, the act of doing. Using this to achieve that. The act of doing overwhelming, using a medium to achieve that. The achieving, the end of the 
process of baptism is called baptisma. So baptism is the state of the believer after he has been baptized into Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So baptism is a state, not an act. Baptisma is the state of the fulfillment of a process. Right? Having been baptized, I have now come into baptism. So the man who has come into Christ Jesus is at baptism. Thank you, sir. Does that make sense? So baptisma in the Greek, it's the end result or when this thing has been achieved, yeah. when all the lights are off, house lights are off, hazes fill the place, and every single light ray can be appreciated for what it is, the way we intended for it to be with no interruptions, then the room is at a state of baptism. Because the whole room has now been baptized with the Holy Spirit into Christ Jesus. Are you getting this? Baptisma, the result of dipping or sinking. This is the baptism by which the Holy Spirit brings us into Christ. Without that, you're not a believer. Visit John as many times as you like. <laughs> it is not, and hear me say this carefully, it is not a recognized medium for baptism in the new creation. In the new creation, only one thing brings you into baptism. Spirit. We are born of spirit. And then you know people now come and start arguing. Oh, but, but uh, Jesus said to John, except you be born of water and spirit. Water, leave it. Leave it. See, you don't know it. You see, water and spirit. Sir, I promise you, don't know it. So just enjoy all the things in Christ you are enjoying until you get to know it. Because you see, you are saved though. <laughs> you are saved. So just enjoy it. Until we teach you something. Because baptism doesn't signify birth. It signifies death. Yes, sir. Born of water. As we know, you know, you don't, you're not born by water. To enter the kingdom. Baptism is dying. You are baptized into his death. Did you see it? <laughs> One baptism by the Spirit. Romans 8, 9. Romans 8, 9. But you are not in the flesh. Tell anybody you're not in the flesh. But in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. See the next line. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ. So excuse me. Those of us that have preached, and I will come to that someday, have preached that when you get born again, we must take you through a class. 
prepare you to receive the Holy Spirit. So all the time you were in class and in church, you were not in Christ. You have to wait until class is over, you pass. Receive the Holy Spirit. If anyone, I mean it's emphatic, right? If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not of his. Tipity. Let's say the tipity. Now, but when the Spirit of Christ empowers your life, you are not dominated by the flesh, but by the Spirit. And if you are not joined to the Spirit of the Anointed One, if you have not passed through this one baptism, that's why we teach you according to the scriptures that the, in ideal circumstances the, those guys in Antioch did not receive the Holy Spirit because they didn't know he existed blame that on people that were teaching whatever they were teaching that did not include the Holy Spirit but the ideal pattern from the scriptures is that the, as you are being born again you are being baptized with the Holy Spirit into Christ to become of him. Do you understand that? Do you understand? Without that, you're not a believer. You're baptized into Christ. Christ, the head of a body. You're baptized into Christ, the head. Head cannot exist in a vacuum. The face looks gorgeous. Very gorgeous. You cannot meet a head without a body. That's a zombie. You came to Christ. You are born again. But you don't want to deal with his body. Wow. Because if Christ is a head, sir, he has a body. And you cannot say you were baptized into Christ and you, that baptism did not deliver you in his body. Listen to me. Nothing the head eats stays at the head. It is for the benefit until it absolutely ultimately returns to the head. See, your heart doesn't run your body. Your brain does. So anything that will profit your body will come from the impulses sent from your brain. So the ultimate end of what is generated by the head is the head through the body. That's why Jesus will sustain the body until the body returns to him. So you cannot be baptized into Christ. Where's, 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 where's his body? You are a believer. Jesus loves Jesus. You are saved. You are eternally sure. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are justified. You are eternally. Where's the body? Because one baptism is baptism by the Spirit into Christ, into Spirit, into body. One baptism. One and the same. If you are baptized into Christ, and how do you know you're baptized into Christ? You have the Holy Spirit. He sent the Spirit of His Son, He sent forth into your heart. Kind of Father. 
and because baptism is an immersion and submersion and an overwhelming, how does Jesus put it in John? He says, the father who gives you the spirit without measure. That's baptism. It covers you. It carries you over. It overwhelms you. It, it, it envelops you. It's the spirit given without measure. That's baptism. Given without measure. There's enough spirit to keep me in the church and deliver me to the Father. Next week I'll pick this up and start to look at that body. If we're baptized into his body, what is the body? What does it connote? When we look at that, then we now bring that into our text. And then we now look at that text, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through to 23, 24, 25. And then we now look at the Lord's Supper in the light of the body of Christ that we've been baptized into. And then we can see if contextually there is reference to forgiveness of sin in this Lord's Supper. See what contextually is thrown up at us when we say the body of Christ. Soma in the Greek. Complete total whole of something as a moving entity. Because Jesus no longer has a physical body. So you can't be saying body of Christ and be referring to a physical body he no longer has. Christ never had a physical body. Jesus did. Peter begins to tell them, this same Jesus is now exalted and called Lord and King. This same Jesus has been given a name at resurrection he didn't have before resurrection. That was what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw a little metamorphosis, a little transfiguration of Jesus. They saw a little bit of Jesus looking like what he would look like when he's resurrected. So when you say body of Christ, it's in, in, in today's terms, post-resurrection body of Christ never refers to a literal body. No. The only time it applied was when it was referred to as the body of Jesus. They went and thought he was the gardener. Where have you moved my master's body? Show me his body so that I may go and embalm him. When Mary was asking Jesus about the body of Jesus. At the tomb, remember? So where, where have you laid his body? Take me to his body. I just want to minister to his body. And you see that what Mary what Mary meant, what the scriptures added that to, was not Mary talking about just wanting to look after the dead corpse of Jesus. But you see how it's a lesson in commitment to the local church that Mary was even in the death of Jesus. I want to serve him. I want to serve his body. I want to serve his body. I want to minister to his body. I want to be a blessing to his body. Not his corpse. Yeah. Post-resurrection, every time the word body is used contextually in the New Testament, it's not referring to a physical body. But a physical body. Yes. 
when we now sit down and talk about discerning the Lord's body. Are we talking about understanding the body of Jesus that was battered on and before the cross? Or are we referring to his body? And then you see where the church for centuries got it wrong because of simple misinterpretation of scripture. Father, we thank you for your word. Today particularly, we thank you for baptism. Let the baptized of the Lord say, Ho! Hallelujah. And before you take your seat, we'll be out of here in less than five minutes, but before you take your seat, can I just have 10, 20 people pray in the Holy Ghost? Today's teaching, we trust it has been worth your time. For more of these messages from our stables, kindly subscribe to our teaching podcast at www.thebasileacommission.podbean.com or via the Podbean app on your mobile device. For inquiries and further information, kindly send us an email to info at thebasileacommission.org or find us on social media with the handles at the truth simply put or at war the church. You can also send us an SMS, call us, or connect with us via WhatsApp on plus 234-70-881-8864. Finally, if you would like to give to support the work that we do, kindly follow the Patreon link in our podcast or contact our office for details. Thank you.